Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. All right. So out of that particular Torah reading, it, it brings up two things I'd like to take a look at. And one of those things is that he says, you've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Taparu and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Signs and wonders are wonderful things. So this, this sign, this wonder, it can be performed by a minister of fire, either a human being or an angel. We just saw Moses and Aaron. They're giving a wonder, just like the angel can do a wonder. But as we read this, this next passage, I want you to look out of all those characteristics we studied of how the angels work. Look for these three things. Because what we, what we don't want to do is be deceived by a wonder, something that's beautiful, something we want to see. A wonder will always be something you want to see, especially if it's intent, intended to deceive you. So in this case, you'll see the angel engaging in minimal dialogue, quick action, and single task action. Once he's done, he's done. He's out of there, just like the angels at Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, Acts 7, 6. On the very night, and this is Passover, by the way, as you're reading through this passage, look at how many Passover expressions you can pick out, like get up quickly. You know, put your put your belt on, put your sandals on. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near Peter, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Wonder. We have to decide, is this going to be an authentic heavenly wonder? Is this going to be a sorcerer's wonder? The angel said to him, put on your belt, strap on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And yet he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Now, when they had passed the first and second guard, and, and the reason I put the picture on there first is if you've never walked through a prison or a jail in Israel, especially an old one made out of those stones, you realize you can't do anything in there. You can't sniffle without it echoing. It's, you make a lot of noise, even when you're not trying to. So all this noise is going on and the guards can't hear it. That's a wonder. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. There's another wonder. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. All right. So that is a wonder. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful story. How many of you love telling that story to kids? Okay, but let's back up to what happened just before that. And is this the story you like to tell your kids? Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church to do them harm, and he had James, the brother of John, executed with a sword. That's a downer. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. Now, these were the days of unleavened bread. When he had arrested him, he put him in prison, turning him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. 
intending only after Passover to bring him before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made to God intensely by the church. So we have a completely different outcome. There was no sign or wonder for James. James lost his head. Did Peter have any reasonable expectation when they locked him up with four squads of soldiers that he would ever make it out of that prison? Do we hear him complaining? Too hot in here, too cold in here, the food's not good. I don't like the leadership. What are all the the things they complained about in the wilderness? Peter could have complained. And I would say at that point, he was expecting to have his head cut off at the conclusion of the days of unleavened bread. He was probably 99% sure that was coming. But all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the exile, he gets a wonder. So do you think Peter was any more righteous than James? No, you don't know when you're going to receive a, a wonder, a miracle. And that's why you need that holy fire, because you don't know if you're called to be a James or a Peter, which on down the line, Peter also <laughs> had to call up that holy fire to say, okay, this is the way it ends, but that's okay. And that's the mindset we're going to have to have. Whether he spares me on an island like John, or whether I get my head cut off like James, or I'm crucified upside down like Peter, if this is why you have put this holy flame inside of me, then this is where we go next. And if you supply a miracle, a sign, and a wonder to deliver me, Baruch Hashem. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, if you don't, Baruch Hashem. If you don't, you didn't. It's okay. So we have to beware of the eye candy of a wonder. You can receive a heavenly wonder, but you can also receive a sorcerer's wonder in order to deceive you. So if somebody receives a, a sign, wonder, a miracle, that's really not proof positive that they're a righteous person. If somebody can do a sign or a wonder, it's not proof positive. It's a righteous person because the nature of a wonder is eye candy. The nature of a wonder is an emotional thrill. The nature of a wonder is I feel validated now. I'm on the right track. Now all my friends and family that badmouth me, they'll understand. Don't wait for that day. Just keep walking or sit in the prison and wait. If that's what you're doing, if you feel like I'm just sitting in the prison waiting for an angel, sit in the prison, wait for an angel and sing. <laughs> Read the word. Keep going through the word. Because when that gate opens, however it opens, you'll pre be prepared for what happens to you one step beyond it. You'll count it joy. So we do have to be careful. And it's like I say, we can't look at so-and-so and say, why weren't they healed? Was there some sin in them that they weren't healed? No, no, no evidence that James did anything different from Peter. Peter, James, and John, that was the dynamic trio, <laughs> the triumphant trio, right? Very quickly, James was taken out. And so as we walk, we have to accept that even though we pray for a sign or a wonder, a healing, a miracle, it may not come. It might, Baruch Hashem, but if it doesn't, it's a Baruch Hashem anyway. We're still with him. Because here's how you can tell the difference. When a sorcerer produces an astounding miracle that makes people go, wow, test it over time. Test him or her over time. If they are not consistently, not perfectly, but if they are not consistently obedient to the word, you're dealing with a sorcerer. And that sorcerer may have been put into place to test you and your faith, to see if you have learned the lessons of evaluating the people you walk with and whether your soul is still addicted to the wows. Jacob prevailed. He never lost 
that birthright identity. And what does he do? He answers the spiritual authority of the red one. Does the red one have some spiritual authority? Yeah, he does. There's principalities and powers. But we know that there's a shelf life for that authority, that he's going to lose his place. And when he loses that place, there's going to be events on earth that make him realize, especially, that his kingdom is coming down. Remember, when Israel rises, it's not like Israel rises. No, when Israel rises, the beast kingdoms fall. It's always like this. If Israel falls into idolatry, then the beast automatically rises. They're always doing this. It's, there's never going to be this. It's always movement. When Israel arises in the Torah, then the beast will know his time is short. Uh, but he's going to try to frighten us. He's going to try to scare us. If I were Jacob and I, <laughs> these sheep kept appearing all night long, I would be a little troubled. <laughs> like, am I getting anything done here? And I feel like this. Are we doing any good here? Or are we just marking time? Of course, we're doing good here. We're standing in what we know of the word. And we have to believe what, what Jacob believed, that his descendants were that holy flame and that they were going to burn up the beast of Esau. They were going to be judges of fire. And so that sorcery of Esau is what Yeshua is identifying in that sheep speech. He's making them think of that story. And he knows Yeshua's sheep his own sheep know the voice of salvation, and they will follow that voice of salvation, walking, and they will follow him. They follow his word, and that night robber of Esau is not going to snatch them out of his hand. Second Corinthians eleven twelve, Paul writes this, because even in that, that time period of the apostles, there were already sorcerers at work in the congregations. I don't, we should never be surprised when those that we think are walking among us aren't. They have their own agendas, and they, they see the sheep as prey. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, Paul says, But what I am doing, I will also continue to do, so that I may eliminate the opportunity from those who want an opportunity to be regarded just as we in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> I don't know if he intended an English pun, but he got one. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So Esau, the adversary, his sheep disguise themselves also as angels of light. But he says it, it's not just, just, you know, it's not surprising that they do that, that they will come to you as a servant of righteousness, because that's how they're going to deceive you. They're going to use your language. They're going to observe your feasts, your Shabbats. It's, it's not going to be easy. And you're going to think, oh, wow, this is a wonderful person. They're just like us. But what are they seeking? An opportunity. They have their own agenda, and they're just disguising themselves in the Torah. Because Esau sends out false shepherds who are robbers. And what do they do? We've been through this ourselves. In almost any congregation you go to, they'll tell you the same story if they've been together long enough. There were false shepherds who were robbers. They weren't there to serve. They weren't there to do the works of the Father. Not really. They were there to promote their own agenda, their own idea, their own doctrine. And they just cut those sheep out and they followed them. And hopefully they got out there and realized this isn't Yeshua. 
this is an Esau, but it's exactly what I wanted to believe. And so Baruch Hashem, as sheep, and I think we've probably all done it. If we're honest, we followed after something that we thought was a good thing. And as we got closer to that good thing, it wasn't what we thought it was. And we circled back, said, I got to go find Yeshua. I got to find sheep like me. Because I don't, these sheep are acting funny. <laughs> you know, they, they've got paws. That, that's not right. <laughs> uh, better to eat you with, my dear, right? <laughs> but this is what Yeshua says in Matthew 16, 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Yonah. And he left them and departed. So if you're seeking after the sign specifically, you have to check yourself and say, am I behaving wickedly and adulterously? Will I only believe the big emotional, wow. Will I only believe if I start seeing everybody heal? If this particular person's shadow falls across somebody and they're instantly healed, ask yourself, the person whose shadow fell, where are they going and where have they been? What are they doing? Are they speaking the truth of the word? Because a miracle is not that big of a wonder. If even a sorcerer can produce a snake, which I don't know that they were even real. I think they wanted to believe them, so they saw them. He'll let you believe if you want to believe a deceiver. And if the deceiver, if the sorcerer throws something out there and you see it, have you seen it? Or did you just want to see it? Were those real snakes that the sorcerers produced? Are they the creator? Are they Elohim? Can they truly create a snake or a crocodile? No. It was an illusion. That's why you call magicians illusionists, because you want to believe it's there. You believe it's there, which would have been really funny if it wasn't really there. Moses and Aaron know they're not there, but they see the Egyptians running all over the palace trying to get away from the crocodiles. And they're going like, what are you running from? <laughs> There's nothing there. But they wanted to see a crocodile. He will let you see what you want to see if you're seeking after the sign is the sole proof of Messiah. And so in Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? He gave them the signs. You want signs? I'll give you signs. That didn't do it. A sign and a wonder will never sustain you. It won't. It might inspire you for a season, but it will not sustain you. It's only the truth of the word that will sustain you. That's it. And sometimes it will have to sustain you when emotionally you are flatlining. And here's what Yeshua told them. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. To some people, the truth does not matter. It's what they want, what they have, what they wish to be, what they wish to be true that matters. The actual truth does not matter to them because their paycheck, whatever that paycheck may be, depends upon them not understanding the truth. John 10, 37, Yeshua said, if I do not do the works of the Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You notice he didn't say wonders. Each time he said works, believe me for the works. He didn't say believe me for the miracles. Believe me for the works. The works there in Greek is ergon, ergon. And if you go back into the Septuagint and you look at uh, how that word was substituted for the Hebrew, you come up with words like avodah, which is work, service, poal, malacha, ma'aseh. Avodah is your everyday work as well as the service of the mishkan. That's not particularly spectacular unless you're 
I don't know, <laughs> a trapeze artist. <laughs> Malacha is everyday work. It's the work you can't do on Shabbat. Hawal is the work of Adonai's hands, especially a work of justice. Ma'aseh is your occupation, your skill, but it also refers to the inscribing of the Torah by the hand of Adonai. You see how none of those things are directly related to a great miracle or a wonder? It's what you do every day that matters. It's what you do when you go to work in the morning or at night. It's what you do when you prepare for Shabbat. It's the malacha. See, if you, this is what the rabbi was telling us the other day, if you don't do the six days of the malacha, then how are you going to deal with the one day without the malacha? Hoah, the wonders, these are the works of Adonai's hands. And often it brings justice, which may not be that spectacular. Your occupation, your skill, the way that you serve in this mishkan, these are the things that Yeshua say matter. If you're going to believe, believe because of these things. Because a sorcerer will try to seduce you away with a sign of wonder or a miracle. Well, you got a 50-50 chance that that's coming from a heavenly source. None of those focuses on the miraculous. So to, to kind of close up here, what happens when we have an antichrist, a false messiah, and there have been many of them in history, the world's full of them right now. But when we look at the big ones, the ones who have made the headlines of history, the, the ones who have ascended to power in history, often what has happened is a people who are dissatisfied, a people who I think are sensing a change in princes and principalities, because as time goes through its seasons, there are upheavals. A people wants more than what it has. A people wants better than what it has. And that can be a good thing because you can work to bring about good changes if you do them according to the established way of the word. But often instead, what people choose are guns, cannons, swords, bullets, words. A word can cut you so deep. And right now we are in the strife of tongues in the United States. I don't know about the rest of the world. That's their business because our business is way more than enough to keep up with. There, we are definitely in a strife of tongues. And we can stay away from the strife of tongues. But this is what happens. It begins with a strife of tongues, and it builds energy, builds energy, builds energy. And then you have an overthrow of one empire or leader, king, whatever. And then the new arises, the new regime arises. And we've been looking at Daniel and how the prince of Persia did not want his empire to come down in order to make room for Greece, the next empire. So he obstructed the message getting to Daniel, like, I don't want Daniel to hear this. He'll tell everybody. <laughs> and, and, you know, word gets out. Oh, wow. Greece is coming. Persia is going down. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't need the other side to have more recruits. Like, yep, they're going down. Let's get over on this side. It's, it's not conducive to his own task. Right? His task is to take care of Persia. But we talked about how the, the beast empires are like cups stacked one on top of the other. And so when you take this top, and let's say this is Babylon up here, you just pour that into the next cup, which is Medo-Persia. And then when that empire is done, you pour that into the next cup, and you've got Greece. And then Greece. Pour it into the next cup, you've got Rome. Well, when Rome's iniquity is full, when that's poured out, that's when the wrath is going to be poured out completely on the earth. Everything that had been contained in a cup is now just going to go splash. But over history, we can look at how it happened and say, this is likely the pattern we should look for. 
when people who want more than what they have or something different from what they have, when somebody offers them what they want, your idea of what is good, your idea of peace and safety, whatever you think that is, however you think that looks, a figure will arise and you will look at that figure. And instead of actually looking at who he is, you will believe that he's everything you want. That's the sorcery. You will project onto him. And I'm not talking about any side of any political party. It's happened to all of them in recent history. Nobody's exempt. We can look at one figure and disregard all the unwordly and untorally things that he does because we project onto him. He will take us back to the way we were, or he will push us forward to the way we need to be. We do that. People idolize movie stars. And then when the movie star behaves in a way they don't expect, they're so disappointed. But that wasn't that person to begin with. They were not who you thought they were to begin with. It was only a little picture you saw on a screen playing a role. It was a deception. That's not who they were. And you projected all that onto them, and then they disappointed you, and now you hate them. Why? It wasn't their problem. It was yours. You should have never put and projected yourself onto that person because what you did is you just projected your own image onto that person. But see, when when these regime changes, once you realize who that person was that you projected your dreams and your hopes upon, and you finally realize who they are, now they're going to demand that you conform to their image and who they actually are. So I wanted to, I, lit, I watched a documentary last week, week before last. And you all know the Shah of Iran. You know, I have a particular interest in Persian history because of my background. But I was watching a documentary based on uh, the Shah of Iran's wife, who still lives in uh, France, I think, at this point. And you all know the story, if you're old enough, 1979, the Islamic Reso- Reso- Revolution in Iran, the Shah had to flee his family. Uh, Shah is basically a king. It's a Farsi way of saying king. And the Ayatollah was brought in and they thought he would solve all their problems. But here's what uh, Farah, the former queen, said about this particular event. And I thought, mm-hmm. everything she said in this statement, we need to remember because it's exactly what Yeshua is teaching us about how to spot an antichrist. She says the Iranian government, the Shah, and his many followers were helpless in the face of the increasing acclaim for this new savior, Khomeini. It was the beginning of the end. They saw Khomeini as a Che Guevara type of character who had been martyred by the emperor, that he was forced to leave Iran and he was in exile. So there was this romance around Khomeini that obscured his own speeches and his writing. In other words, they disregard everything he was saying and writing because of who they wanted him to be. And I think it's fair to say that many of his young supporters did not understand what he was saying. Many of them actually believed that his most famous statement, the Valayat e Fakid, which develops the thesis of Islamic government, his young supporters believed that this was a forgery produced by the Shah and by the Savak, the internal police, to discredit Khomeini. In other words, he says, this is what I'm writing. And they said, oh, no, you didn't write that. That was just the Shah is trying to interfere. It was fake news. They couldn't believe that anything so extreme would come from this grandfatherly figure. So there was a sort of willful denial. It's something we've seen in other revolutionary situations. You want to believe? You project your dreams and ideals onto this distant figure. And then 
when he steps onto this stage, you are presented with someone and something very, very different. That's how the sorcerer seduces us. He offers exactly what we want. And if we don't have a heart to understand, we won't understand exactly who this is. That's why we need a heart to understand. The only way we're going to have a heart to understand, I think, is with those two components. We have to have not just a love for the word, but we have to be students of the word because the word can be twisted by a sorcerer. And we have to have that holy flame. If the power of the Holy Spirit is not moving through those words in us, then you're pretty much helpless because it's the spirit in you that knows the truth. It is written. All your soul knows is, I feel, I think I want. And that's how the seducer will give you what you think you feel you want until you find out who he actually is. Jacob woke up. We can wake up. We don't have to fall for it. No matter what's going on in the rest of the world, we know that your security is in Yeshua. And nobody can snatch you out of his hand, no matter what else is breaking loose in the world. So we have that hope that so many in the world today, they don't have. And I, I pray that they will have. And I pray that one way that, that they will have it is that you will be that light, that you will have that peace in the midst of the storms that are coming that will draw them to you. And, and they will ask you those questions. Why, why do you have so much peace with so many bad things going on around you? Why are you so serene when everything in the news is bad? When every expectation that we have in the economy and conflict and every part of our lives, if, if, the, if the forecast is bad uh, to worse, then why do you seem like, you know, it's we're living in the best of times? It's because we are. We are living in the best of times, you know, to quote Charles Dickens, it, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Sometimes those times are simultaneous. And so if we're walking with the footsteps of Messiah, these are the best of times. The good news is going forth. If we haven't found salvation in Messiah yet, if we're not walking in Messiah's righteousness, then these can be the worst of times. But it, it all hinges, you know, can I'll turn around in a moment. And that, that moment is called a moment of repentance. And so I pray that, that, you know, in these coming weeks, that you will be that instrument for others. And the Torah portion this week is Nitzavim. And Nitzavim means you are standing. So we have arrived at a decision point. We have arrived at a place in the Torah where you need to decide which side you're going to stand on. And, and there's a passage in here in Nitzavim that's going to be just vital to helping us understand um, as we kind of come to the end of, of investigating how not to be seduced by sorcery, especially in these last days. It's really strange how the Torah portions are really just following with us, even though we didn't necessarily set out to teach around the Torah portion in this particular cycle, in the Shemitah cycle. It's still falling into line, which tells you that, you know, it's out of our hands. It's in the hands of the Spirit, what it what we need to be taught in any given week. And so Baruch Hashem, this is, this is the way that it's falling. And so uh, what we're doing, remember last week, we talked a little bit about the sorcerer's tale. What are the tales that the sorcerer tells us in order to deceive us? And so we're going to play on that a little bit uh, this time with the sorcerer's tale, the T-A-I-L, because we want to look at the, the dragon's tale in the book of Revelation, and why a third of the stars would be swept down with him. 
because those stars have a particular symbolism. We've already covered some of that symbolism as it you know, applies to principalities and powers. Also, as applies to the constellations, would apply to the 12 tribes of Israel. And this week, we want to look at it particularly as a possibility that the children of Abraham, who were numbered with the stars, um, is it possible that even the children of Abraham could be deceived? Because if you remember, there's lots of children of Abraham. Not all children of Abraham are descended through Sarah. Some are descended from Abraham by faith. There's there's no particular familial link. There is another religion out there that consider themselves descendants of Abraham. So there was more than one wife in the relationship. There were three others uh, in a relationship with Abraham. So he has lots of children all over the world. And so when we think of Abraham's children being so innumerable as, as the number of the stars, then it makes perfect sense why you would have a third of the stars swept away by the dragon's tail, because you know all of Abraham's children are not walking as Abraham. Um, and so we want to look at, at some deceptions of the sorcerer again, so that we'll be prepared and ready not to be deceived by the sorcerer's tail, nor swept away by his tail. That makes sense. So let's let's read this little section here from Nitzavim. You were standing. He says, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you. And as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. Now, that sounds like an impossible statement. How could there be people who aren't standing there who are standing there? Well, it's exactly the same way we're reading it right now. We are reading timeless words, words that stand outside of time. And so once we understand the symbolism of today, and remember, I've encouraged you to keep a journal or a glossary or something of prophetic terms or symbolic terms in scripture, today has a special meaning other than just literally today. Today can be today. It depends on context. But clearly in this context, he's talking about something much bigger than the actual 24-hour day. And so often in scripture, when it's it's today is spoken of, today refers to today if you will hear his voice. Today, if you will hear his voice. What does that mean? You're saying, what should I write down to that? Today is any day in which you hear his voice and obey it. So while it is still called today, we are urged. The New Testament tells us, while it's still called today, we have things to do. What does that mean? Because we can still hear his voice. And so today is a day of decision-making. In other words, if you will not hear his voice today, then it may not be today. But if you heed and hear his voice today, then it is a day of transformation. And it's it's very appropriate because, you know, tomorrow evening we, we, enter into the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, whatever particular way it is that you like to refer to it. But in its essence, you know, some people don't like Rosh Hashanah, the, the head of the year, 
But you have to understand what Shana is in Hebrew. It's not just a year, it's a change. Shana is a change. It's a transformation. And so in that sense, it's very consistent with what the Torah calls this season, which is the turn or the going out of the year. Something in the year is changing today. Even though it's the seventh month, that's okay. I don't know. knows what he's doing. He said, but it's only the seventh month and there's 12 months. How can it be the change or the, the turn of the year? It can be because, you know, in our service tomorrow, I'm going to be teaching on the shofar and we're going to talk about, again, how things can be simultaneously true and how actually what we're doing in the seventh month is going to be a day of remembrance. The Feast of Trumpets is a day of remembrance. What are we remembering? Remembering the covenant at Shavuot when the Yovel was blown, and that's how we blow it again on the Feast of Trumpets as a remembrance of Shavuot. And so in this particular case, Nitzavim, why are you standing here today? You are standing here today because today's your decision day. Today's the day you're going to change. Today's the day you're going to transform or not. And we're going to take a close look at that passage as a short tour portion. But there's something vital in there. And I think um, this, you know, descending into the, the COVID crazy over the last couple of years has really been case in point when it comes to this Torah portion where we're warned about Wormwood. And the distraction has been, I think, in the medical arena. Not that there aren't problems in the medical arena, there are. But as people of Adonai who are called to deal with today, our spiritual condition, I think we might be overlooking something. And if we overlook that thing in terms of looking around the world and looking for the beast and and looking for the Antichrist and looking for the conspiracies and looking for the ways they're trying to kill us, of course, they're trying to kill us. (laughs) Every day you wake up, somebody's trying to kill you some way, right? But being distracted and studying conspiracy theories more diligently than the scripture, I think leaves us in a very precarious place. And if you are standing, you don't want to be standing in a precarious place. You want to be standing in a firm place. The big pharma and all that, they're going to do what they're going to do. The politicians are going to do what they're going to do. The the military commanders are going to do what they're going to do. The economists are going to do what they're going to do. But we're going to do what we're going to do today. Today is the day that we are going to hear his voice and we're going to make a decision. So let's let's get to it. Uh, And just to review last week, as we're studying the footsteps of Messiah, we looked into how sorcerers are going to be able to produce signs and wonders. They always have. That's why they're sorcerers. <laughs> it is, they appear um, to be able to do things, um, supernatural things. And we've been looking at some passages repeatedly that help us to remember how a heavenly messenger, whether it's an angel, whether it's you know an appointed member of the house of Israel, like an apostle or so forth, uh, that they can be a minister of fire, just like the fire services as they came up from the wilderness and they instituted the tabernacle service and the service of fire that the nations were able to see and, and to wonder at. By the same token, you are going to have these sorcerers, you are going to have the deceivers, you're going to have the beast and the antichrist and all these. They're going to try to imitate heavenly wonders. They're going to, well, they're not going to try to imitate. They will. They will imitate heavenly wonders and fire. Let, let, let me get you ready right here. Okay. Uh, it won't be any try to 
to it. They will not try. They will imitate. It's not as if it actually is a heavenly wonder or that it is a heavenly fire, but it's an authentic imitation. (laughs) Sounds like something we get at the grocery store, right? Authentic, fake, something. But they're legitimately imitating these things. So yeah, you're going to see things, wonderful things. And so last week we talked about how to not be led astray by something that looks wonderful. And, you know, we, we said last week, there's something we, we need to guard ourselves from, particularly at this time, because Revelation emphasizes it. Revelation 9.21 and 18.23, we need to be beware of sorcery, deceptions, people who are going to play with fire. And the fires that they're playing with are not literal fires. They're spiritual fires that they have no business dealing with because we're prohibited in scripture from trying to manipulate these fires. But I want to give you a little bit more understanding into these fires so that should somebody roll out a genuine imitation fire, you're going to be able to spot it. You know, you don't have to be deceived by it. And if you know ahead of time that the beast will be given power to produce signs and wonders, that he's even going to be able to call down fire from heaven like the two witnesses in Revelation 11.5, you're going to be prepared for that and you're going to be able to evaluate that because you have the test. Anything you see, you can test it against the scripture. And if it's not a genuine heavenly sign or wonder, then there's going to be some aspect of it that will not stand up to the test of scripture. That's the problem. And what I'm trying to do today is help us to see the things that we do in our own thinking, in in our deceiving of our own selves, that can lead to us believing that we see an authentic fire, that we see an authentic wonder. Because the sorcerer's illusions are going to cater to what rebels want to see. In other words, if you've decided on some particular point of scripture that, you know what, I'm just not going to do that. It says to do it. I'm just not going to do it. If it says forgive, well, I'm just not going to forgive so-and-so. Well, you can't just decide (laughs) you're not going to do something he tells you to do if you're called by his name, if you're called into the covenant. And in order to justify our sins, whether it's a doing or not doing, as we deceive ourselves, then we become more susceptible to the sorcerer's illusion because the sorcerer, you know, he feasts on rebellious people because rebellious people, the the one thing we can say about them is they see what they want to see, not necessarily what is there. And so that's the way an illusion works. If you want to see it, you'll see it but it's because you wanted to see it. It doesn't mean that what you saw is authentic, that it's it's from a realm of truth. So let's review right quick. These ministers of fire, you're probably getting tired of looking at these verses, but they really do form a thread that helps us to understand, you know, what we've been looking at with the principalities and powers, uh, looking at the, the techniques the tools of the sorcerer, and so that we will not be vulnerable to them, especially as we're we're reaching this transformation point of the seventh month. So Psalm 104.4 says, he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire, his ministers. And the flaming fire there is the the esh lohet, esh lohet. Esh is fire, lohet is flaming. And a lohet, or it comes from lahat, 
It can be, be a flaming fire that performs a specific function according to, you know, the dictates of Elohim, right? And this sort of fire is consuming in the same way that you could not rush into a burning house and live there. In the same way, if you were not in a condition of holiness, neither can you rush into the fire of the spirit because both natural fire consumes and spiritual fire consumes. And so, you know, as we we get to this, we'll eventually get to a graphic of the rivers of Eden and, and trying to show you how those flaming rivers of fire surrounded the Garden of Eden. You just have to understand Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had to leave uh, because they would have been basically consumed ever alive in a state of sin. And that's just it. The, the spiritual fire is refining. It's holy. And if you try to carry your sin in there, rebelliously carry your sin in there, then it'll consume you. It'll, it's, it's designed to separate you from the holy presence, right? For your good. <laughs> you, you just can't do it. Here's a couple of other verses. Job 41, 21, his breath sets coals aglow and a flame goes forth from his mouth. Well, what comes out of his mouth? But the word. So his word becomes a flaming messenger, a lahat. What happens when you try to deceive people with the word of Adonai? You're a sorcerer. Psalm 83, 14, it says, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. All right. Again, we're seeing, you know, appearances of this type of flame, this lahat, where fire goes before him and burns up his enemies all around. That's Psalm 97, 3. There again, you see the lahat. And so in this particular case, where it says fire goes before him and burns up his enemies all around, it's, it's saying actually the fire walks. And that's what the voice of Elohim did in the garden. It walked. And, and Adam and Eve could hear the voice of Elohim walking in the garden. The voice walked. It moved. And so once they're kicked out of the garden, uh, it says that, you know, two cherubim were put in place at the entrance of the garden. And they have what? Flaming swords. And they're there to prevent reentry and access to the tree of life in the midst of the garden, to prevent that which is unclean and unholy from penetrating into the garden of Eden, into a place of life and contaminating that garden. In the same way that you did not enter the temple without a purification process, it's the same way, it's just on a smaller scale than if you were to look at the Garden of Eden and how important it is as you go into the Garden of Eden to be in a state of purity, to be in a state of holiness, to be in a state of obedience, to be single-minded and have your heart full of love for Yeshua. Because if, if you're trying to drag your sin in there, it will consume you as an enemy. It's just the nature of the fire. It's, you know, we make no judgment on natural fire. Fire is fire. Fire, it just is. It's just a thing. And so we can't judge the fire for what it is, if that is what it is. In the same way, the Garden of Eden, we don't judge the fire. We don't judge the Caribbean for turning this sword around the garden so that it prevents reentry. There's no judgment there because that fire just is what it is. It would consume anybody that tried to penetrate in there unworthily. Okay. Now, just to review too, this is a verse that we've been working with from Song of Songs 3.6, because, you know, as we're talking about the footsteps of Messiah, we're comparing ourselves to the Israelites in the wilderness, 
because as the prophet said, now we're in the wilderness of Egypt. We're in the wilderness of the peoples. And so we can take those lessons from the wilderness and apply them to where we are today. And so the question concerning the 12 tribes of Israel is this, who is this coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the scented powders of the merchant? What has happened in the wilderness? A transformation, columns of smoke from the sacrificial services, uh, from the incense, the myrrh and frankincense from the sacrifices and from the incense service, the scented powders of the merchants. It's, it's representing the dust of Jacob that Jacob you know, wrestled with the angels. That it's, you can translate it powders or dust. And it was said with the dust that was kicked up in that wrestling match with the angels that Jacob you know, prophesied that his descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel, they would be transformed in the wilderness and they would prevail over Esau. And if you'll remember from that story, we read a Midrash. And remember, a Midrash is an illustrative story. You're not supposed to take it as scripture. It's telling you a story to teach you an object lesson, to help you form your thinking on particular passages of scripture. So it's not like you're adding to the Torah. It's adding a clarification. You know, just like with anything else. Sometimes if you're trying to get kids to understand something, you'll tell them a story, you know, um, and that's where we get children's literature. You're trying to teach your children life lessons. And so you tell them through a story. That's kind of what Midrash is. It, it was trying to help you understand the Torah. So it will tell you with an illustrative story. And so if you remember, there was the story about Jacob and the angel wrestling all night. And they believed that possibly this was Esau's angel that he was wrestling with uh, that was trying to prevent him from crossing back into the promised land. and. So what Jacob is dealing with, at first it says it was a man, and then finally the angel corrects Jacob's thinking. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm an angel. <laughs> That's who I am. And so in order to test Jacob, the Midrash says uh, the angel placed his finger on a piece of flint, and the flint began seething with fire. Whereupon Jacob said to him, with this fire, you seek to frighten me? I'm entirely a fire, as it states. The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for straw, and they will ignite them and devour them. So he's saying on this small scale, the way that, that I'm going to outlast this angel and this wrestling match, which remember it was about sheep, I'm going to prevail here. I'm going to stand my ground here. And because I stand my ground, it's going to inspire my descendants to also stand their ground and take up their issue with Esau, who's called the Red One. And this is why he's called the Red Beast in the book of Revelation. I'm going to prevail over Esau's angel. They're going to prevail over these powers and principalities associated with Esau in their time. And so even though Esau is going to have dominion for a season, in the end, the, the house of Jacob will be the fire and the house of Joseph, the flame that's just going to ignite Esau and devour him, just like the holy fire, it, it devours, right? Because that which is holy, unholy can't stand before it. And so when we look at an angel's identity, you know, kind of going back to our, our scriptures that we went over again about the, the Eshlohet, an angel can be a flaming fire of Elohim. And the wrestling match 
that Jacob got into with this angel, they say that there's a hint in here in the wrestling match called Bayevek. Bayevek. He wrestled. And they say that can also be related to the Hebrew word for chort, torch, abuka. And so what was the angel trying to do in the story? He's trying to frighten and deceive Jacob with the fire demonstration. He's, he's trying to scare Jacob into thinking his descendants would never survive the exile, that they would be destroyed by devouring fire, just like Jacob was almost consumed in, in Levan's territory. But instead, Jacob won. He made it back into the promised land. He never lost his identity. He never lost his birthright. And in the end, the angel had to bless him and say, yeah, uh, you're granted, it's yours, which is pretty much what the red beast is going to have to say at the end of time. You win. You have prevailed. And so this spiritual authority of the red one was subdued. We know that it's the red dragon that gives his authority to the scarlet beast, all right? Uh, It's going to be the sword of the word that's going to prevail over the dragon and the beast. So Jacob is saying, you know what, Esau, you're the one going to be consumed by fire because the sons of Elohim are also Elohim with a small E, which can mean judges or angels, that my descendants are going to be judges of fire. He's saying my descendants will be redeemed and they'll consume your house with the sword of the word. And so this is where we get, you know, this wrestling match over the sheep that just like Yeshua said, my sheep know my voice, they will not follow another. Jacob finally caught on to that. When he kept going back and finding more sheep, it finally dawned on him. These are Esau's sheep. These aren't my sheep. My sheep would have followed me. They know my voice. But it's by kind of hinting to that, that midrash that Yeshua is replying to those who doubt that he's the true, authentic Messiah that he's saying, you know what, I'm not going to leave those sheep out there. I'm not going to leave Jacob's sheep out there. But if you're Esau's sheep, it's perfectly understandable why you're not interested in the salvation of these other sheep. Because if if you recognized who I was, you would hear me and follow my voice. Yeshua is even kind of teaching along these lines of the sorcerer and, well, the sorcery of the, the house of Esau. So this prophecy that the Midrash is quoting in Obadiah about the house of Jacob and the, the house of Joseph being a consuming fire, he's, he's helping us look forward to the time of revelation when even though it's a time that even the elect could be deceived, that those children will be held firmly in the palm of Yeshua's hand. They're not going to be fooled by a sorcerer's fire. Instead, they are going to turn into fire. you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.